Let me talk you through the two most emotional, stressful months of my sales career. It's no big deal to call a CTO and tell I want to talk. You cannot stand on the sideline and basically wait until the dice rolls itself. It's never gonna happen. I don't know if this is gonna be on the record or off the record. It's almost like playing with cards, this job. Like, it's like you, you get given a, a hand of cards and like you have to do the best with what, what you have. Someone might have been watching, watching down on me. Me and Jack going into this, when, when he originally told me exactly the same, like, oh, you know, Jack, I've got this idea, you know, what about this? I just, my first thought was, my God, if no, I don't even care if anyone, like, listens to this, you know, if I take one key takeaway from every recording, I'll be such a better app. This is no big deal, a sales podcast. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of No Big Deal with me, Jack Nico, and Jack Fox. And we are super glad to welcome David Foreman onto the podcast today. Me and David used to work together at Athena, and he has a whale to talk to us about today. Bit of context into David. He started his sales career in Oracle, which I think has a bit of notoriety amongst sales reps as the type of organization it is, good or potentially bad. And then he went on to work at Athena, selling MarTech. He was so successful in the enterprise sales team there, opening up the US market that he eventually went on to run the enterprise sales team. And now he works at Navin, formerly Trip Actions, selling enterprise software across the US in the central and western US. David, thanks for joining yeah. us. Awesome, guys. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for joining us, David, and appreciate giving us the time to talk us through this deal. And I've got a question which we usually kick off with. Yeah. And the question is, we're all interested in how, in, in how you close the deal and, and what what skills and techniques you use to, to navigate through it. But we also want to know what, what this deal did for you. So yeah. perhaps in your personal life or your professional life or in your understanding of enterprise sales. But it would give us a bit of an insight into what, what closing this deal did for you. Yeah, it's a good question. I when I started in sales, I was selling more to SMB. When I made the shift over to to Athena, it, it was very very different. And I was started selling to Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, and so it was very very different. The time it took to close deals, even versus ERP uh, at Oracle, was a lot longer. And so just the the amount of money some of these companies have, but they're much more diligent with how they spend it, really transformed my understanding of sales and what it could do for my family personally from, from a financial standpoint, but also for my career to better understand how these companies were run, how complex they were, and what I needed to truly be a good salesperson, not someone who relied on solutions consultants or things like that to sell a super technical sale, but truly to build a business case. And, and make me a better seller. And so this deal really transformed me as a seller. Obviously, financially, made me understand the implications of being a salesperson and helping transform a fortune, in this case, 100 company and, and what that could mean for me personally, in my career, financially, all those, all those things. What I was going to say as well on top of that, David, you know, I think yeah. this is the first time we've had a guest on that's sold the deal to a fortune 100 company. What do you notice is the biggest differences from selling to them versus potentially other enterprise businesses? Yeah, good, really good question. I think you've got to find the right people. And I think that sounds really simple, but I think I learned it there and I take it today. Like at Navan, I sell to enterprises as well, but it's super important to ensure that you've got the power chart and not just the org chart. Like there's a big difference between the power chart and the org chart. And what I mean by that is like someone at a Fortune 100 company has a lot of pride in 
their company and maybe they've been there for 15, 20, 30 years. That was not the case when I was selling to tech companies or to companies under 500, like 500 million. Like some of them had some pride, but some of these people that I was selling to at this Fortune 100 company and at these larger enterprises I still sell to today have been at these companies for 15, 20, 30, sometimes even 40 years, which is crazy to us in tech that people could do that, but they have serious pride in where they work. And I think with that, comes this idea of a power chart versus an org chart where like someone who's been there for 20 years, but might be like a very powerful accounting manager, director of accounting, or leader in the marketing space, maybe they didn't want to get a promotion, but they're really well respected. That happens a lot at Fortune 500 companies. And I've found that it doesn't quite happen as much as smaller companies. And so really, again, understanding the power chart of like who actually has power there. And it's much, it can be much different than an org chart. Yeah. I, I just, I've had deals with large companies where like the SVP has no power, but someone who's been promoted a couple of times and now they're a director of accounting maybe has, has a lot of power. And I think it really helped me understand that working this deal. I think that's so interesting. I always say that I'm trying to explain that to people, but I always use our own company as a, as a, like a microcosm for when you're trying to sell to other people and not trying to blow too much smoke up Jack's ass. But let's say, for example, you were trying to sell to sales off Jackson AE here, but if you were trying to sell to sales off, you'd need him on side because mm. we all know Jack's loud. He's got opinions, he's respected. I'd like to think the same goes for me, but just to use you as an example, like if we're in the office and someone's trying to sell us something and it's red or blue, Jack says red, people are going to listen. And that yeah. is even more so at larger businesses and more enterprise level businesses. And that kind of leads me on to my next question. Is there a way that you did in this deal in particular or just in your general day-to-day work that you go about smoking that out? Yeah, I mean, it's the question, right? Because a lot of times the person could be an EA, right? EAs could have tons of power. It could be a chief of staff. Like one of the, the chiefs of staff at the company I work for now is one of the most powerful and important people in our business. Hopefully she doesn't get a lot of outreach based on this from, from people who are cold calling, but like she's extremely powerful. And so the way that I, I do tend to get an understanding is I love reaching out to salespeople at works and just saying, hey, could you help a, a fellow salesperson out, right? That's definitely one way. And I think... There hasn't been a massive deal that I've won in my career where I haven't had an inside person, whether it's a a fellow salesperson who I've befriended or someone, a friend of mine that works at the company that can kind of give you an insight. And and that was actually the case at at this big fortune 100 company that I, that I sold, but that's, that's what I do. I, I try, I go around, I try to find people who are willing to spill some beans and maybe don't like the solution they're using now, but that I can truly build into a coach, right? They're not going to be a champion. They're not going to help me get to the, the economic buyer, but they can help me navigate the org and understand the, the power chart. How senior was your person on the inside in the deal we're speaking about today? They managed a team. So they weren't crazy senior, but they had been there for like six or seven years and they were in, they were at HQ. So they knew, they knew the people they knew of them. They, the, and the people they knew of, they had friends and they would ask around and we're a good enough friend to, to ask around and understand what the power chart was at this business that I was selling to. You said as you were kicking off, it still took about two years for you to, for you to finally get yeah. it closed. Can you tell us about how it started? Like, was this on your target list? Was this one that you kind of like, there was a warm lead? Was this like a small existing account? How did it get kicked off? Good question. It was the top account I wanted to close from the beginning. I actually, it was actually on a cold call. I called the SVP and he was on vacation. 
And I feel like a little bit earlier in my career, I was really, really, I was pretty brutal as a, as a cold caller. And, and I think I I'd come out of that at this time, by this time, but I, I would be like, you don't want to save 40% or you don't want to whatever. And that's kind of how I did it and tended to book a lot of meetings. I think cold calling has changed a lot today. There's a lot of fatigue around it, but he was like, Hey, I'm, I'm actually on vacation. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like I'm happy to, to connect back. I just wanted to, to tell you like why I was calling so that we can connect when you get back. I know you guys are are worried about losing losing ground and not being number one anymore. And I wanted to understand if there's any way that we could help you, basically. And he was like, I, I got a couple minutes to chat now. And uh, so I don't know if he was bored on vacation with his family or, or kind of what the reason was that he decided to take that call. But that's how it started. It was it was a cold call to an SVP who who was on vacation and 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 introduced me to the right people on his team. That's amazing. I just have this image of like some big like SVP or sitting on a sun lounger going, pitch me, boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Give me your best. And yeah. probably on speakerphone with his family. And I'd done research, right? I knew why we were relevant to what they were doing. And I think sometimes that that obviously takes people back when you've really done research and are saying why you strategically would align to what their business is doing. Yeah. And I agree. Yeah. And you probably went into that first meeting eventually after his holiday with some great hypothesis about how you would help. What did that process look like over the next six months? Yeah. Well, the next part was pretty embarrassing. I, he was like, his, his ultimate response was, yes, this is super relevant to us. Would love to have my team meet with you. It's not something that I would probably start with. So I'm going to introduce you to the VP under me and the director and have them meet with you. And two or three weeks later, I hadn't received anything. And I'd pinged him a couple times and nothing back. And I just searched the name in my inbox. And I'm like, this has never happened in my career. I don't know if it was a Gmail mess up or if it was just me. But that guy had actually reached out to me like five or six days before and had tried to set up the meeting. And either I missed it or I, I don't know. It might have been in my span. I don't know what happened because I don't know how I would have missed an email. We don't get that many emails back as salespeople. And I saw that he had emailed me back and I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. I lost my chance. I just, I had some momentum. I got the SVP to say yes. And I'm now like six days, seven days late responding to an email from, from someone on his team. So that was the next part. And it was like, I was like, shoot, I think, I think I might've missed my chance. And I, I responded to him and we got, we, he did it pretty quickly, got the, got the meeting set up with the VP and the director and it was off to the races kind of from there. This is why I love about this podcast because I'm in this exact same position right now and I actually don't really know what to do. So I'm going to ask you, this is the position where I get into a little bit of like paralysis by analysis. I've done my hypothesis. I've done my research. I think I'm right. I know I'm probably wrong in some areas. I've got some resources from outside that say, yeah, we're keen to help you. What do you need? An engineer, solutions, so on, etc. And I'm like in the position now where I've been, I've got introductions, and yeah. now I'm interested to know what's the, especially selling to a Fortune 100 company, what's the process look like once you've gathered a little bit of information, and you're and you're ready to start progressing the deal forward. What do you prioritize at this point? Is it a technical validation that you prioritize? Is it trying to get some senior stakeholders or sponsors, or is it trying to get groundswell? What's your, what was your approach in this position? Yeah. It's, it's all the above. And that's what makes enterprise sales such a beast, right? Like if you're going to truly sell to a company of that size, or I mean, even companies, 5,000 plus employees, like you've got to get a lot of buy-in, especially if the change management is big, because people are going to go to the heads of departments and ask if they have time for the change management as it relates to the product you're selling. And so I think, I think it's probably kind of a cop-out answer, but it is all the above. Like prospecting doesn't stop when you when you get the first meeting it can't you have to get wider in accounts you absolutely have to 
You have to get the people who will use it to validate that there's the pain that the executive said is there, or it, it aligns directly with the strategic initiatives that have been set. And so to me, it, it really is all the above. Like you have, you have to continue to get wider. You have to build strategic objectives, but of course you have to get technical validation that the tool will even work for the company that you're, that you're selling to. And all of those things have to be true in, in a massive, massive deal. Were you able to land David in this instance in some form of live project eventually? where they were like, oh, we've thought about exploring this. Or was it a really educational piece that they'd never really thought mm-hmm. about that you'd managed to tie to objectives? Good question. Because I think in, in sales, sometimes we try to tie ourselves to objectives that aren't super aligned. I don't know if you guys have ever done that, but oh, yeah, love that. That, that, that always falls, not always, but usually falls on deaf ears if you're working with someone who actually has the ability to get a deal done. And so faking that you're aligned to something will maybe get you a meeting, but won't get you far. I, I think... From my perspective, like the most important thing is to align with those strategic objectives and to ensure that you're continuing to validate them with every single person in the deal. Like that, that to me is the most important piece is like, does the low level person who maybe isn't as strategic, are they actually hearing about those things? Right. Or is that just like the word on the street? Are they like, are they just going to like on their earnings call and just saying, oh, this is what we're trying to do. But like, they're not actually putting anything in place to do that, right? Down down below. So from our perspective, like we got technical validation that this was something that they were thinking about could drive the growth that they needed, both from the people that were running the day-to-day, but also from the people who were strategically there. So we were aligning to something they were trying to do, but like it was just one piece of it. And we kind of opened up this thought that like, hey, this data that we were going to be providing would actually help you in two or three other ways other than what you were thinking about before. Something which I'm finding is a bit of a common theme, and I'm wondering if it's the same for you. So now you're going about trying to attack in all of these three, I'm going to say attack, but you know what I mean, it's a bit cheesy, but you're going about your approach in all of these like three or four different channels. You're trying to get technical validation, stakeholder alignment, sponsorship from an exec, yep. some sort of probably ROI as well. How, how all-consuming was this? on your on your life outside of work and did you have to change the way that you were living at all like the way you were like impact your exercise your family your health your friends your socializing was there any kind of impact on the wider scope of your life because of this deal yeah good question i mean i think once we were in contracting for sure because i felt like sometimes when someone responds to you and you're in contracting, you want to like respond to the email quickly and just keep the momentum going. And that's kind of how I live. I live in a very quick world and I try to do things very quick. And sometimes that's really good. And sometimes I make a boo-boo and, and like say something wrong or whatever. But like, I find that if I'm working quickly, then the benefits usually outweigh the cost. And so, yeah, I mean, like during that time, I had push notifications for my phone from email, which I try not to do. Like I check it every once in a while, but like I'd have push notifications. And I think yeah, there, there are things that probably weren't healthy. And I think I can tend to do that in terms of like, not either not being focused on my family at the time I didn't have kids, but I think that's definitely something that slips in for me is like getting all consumed with work. I'm, I have a pretty, I have a personality that definitely gets intense and, and gets obsessed with things. And so I need to be super careful with that. Yeah, I think we all do. I think the anxiety, especially when you've got something yeah. so large that knowing the size of the deal probably did most of your annual number, maybe if not all of it. And something that you messaged there, mentioned there was contract negotiations. And, you know, I know this deal lasted for over two years before it was eventually sold. 
I presume that you probably weren't trying to sell the value into the second year. I'm sure they were pretty sold on the value. It was all around timing. Well, sort of. A lot of it was timing. I mean, the process for an insurance company is insane. And a lot of fin, like FinServe in general is insane. And so we had technical validation three months into the conversation. We also had two or th- we had a champion leave and two really strong coaches who were like driving the conversations leave during this time, of course, because it was two years long or like actually didn't leave the business, but they went to a different part of the business, which is what happens in a lot of these companies. And so it, a lot of it was, yeah, we, we had validation that what we were doing would would work and would help them and help drive revenue and give them the data they need. The second year though, it's easy when you're in contract negotiation to stop selling. And I think that's something that I learned here and probably a mistake I made was like for the first couple of months, I kind of stopped selling and assumed that we were good and it wasn't going to take a year. And then my champion left. And I realized that I needed to keep selling. I needed to keep reminding people of why we were on the path we were on. And so to your point, like, yeah, we had validation, but we always had to keep selling because over two years, strategic objectives for companies can change, of course. And so I need to keep doing discovery and keep selling our value and ensuring that there's a, a, like they remember, why are we going through this really strenuous process of contracting and ultimately change management after the deal? That always has to be top of mind in these deals. Can you give us an anecdotal example of that in this, in this deal? Of, of selling? Yeah, selling dur- yeah, continual selling during the, the later stages. Yeah. I mean, I think we had some newer stakeholders, for example, that came in. And I probably didn't take them seriously enough in the first couple of months. And when we lost the champion, it was like scrambling and being like, oh, gosh, I need to go. I need to go like showcase the value again, like selling is kind of a firmer word, but like I truly want to showcase the value of what we're doing. And so I think, again, that goes to getting wide and making sure that we're continuing to do what we need to do to have as many people when they get to a meeting, whether we're part of it or not, raise their hand and go, yes, this is a solution that we need. Right. Because you don't want two people doing that because then there's too much pressure on them. And then they really go, are you sure? But if there's five, 10, 15 people, there's a lot less pressure on that individual for that to be successful, candidly. And so I think that's something I, hey, I actually reached out to a couple of those people. I'm like, hey, let's let's do a one-off and let's let's get some time to make sure that this is going to work for you and that you're going to see value in this and that this is going to help your day-to-day so that when you have a say, which they have somewhat of a say, they're kind of lower level, like you'll you'll know what you'll what you will say. Right. And so validating those things continuously is super important. Okay. Continuing to build a general consensus throughout kind of classifies as selling. Right. Interesting. So, at what point when you were going through this contracting process, did you sense that there was blood in the water? We're getting a deal done. There's line of sight on the contract here. And we're going to go push for it. Did you did you have that moment? Maybe that like light bulb or you like or what eureka moment where you felt like things were going to start to fall into place? I would say in month two, in like from the beginning of the deal, I knew there was blood in the water more. Than I did in month 20 <laughs> of 24. Because contracting and like data processing agreements and things like that are so such a pain. And at some points you feel like there's your legal teams or like the info, infosec teams are just never going to come to an agreement. So it's kind of funny in this deal. It's like I, I knew the value we had, but I knew we were a smaller company. And I was, I was wondering how much we were going to have to give and how big of a risk we would be willing to take to, to kind of let them rule the infosec piece and the dpa and all that stuff so i would say i would say honestly like in month two i I genuinely knew we had a business case that we could present and then from there it was just aligning with our champions there were two champions that like had access to the eb and then getting a bunch of coaches who would help us 
to make sure we were building a strong business case. And so I think that's when it was. But again, there were twists and turns and there were lots of days. And to your question earlier, Zach, like, or Zach, Jack, like sleepless nights of being like, we're not going to come to an agreement on contracting. Like this is done. And then somehow it happens. I feel like that happens in a lot of deals, but somehow, somehow the, the legal teams agree. Did you have at any stage in the deal, you know, you had champions selling to the economic buyer in such yeah. a large company, is that economic buyer literally the CFO of the organization or is it the CFO of the division that you're selling to? Yeah, it depends on the company 100%. In this business, it was actually an SVP who was the economic buyer had budget for this. Where I'm at now, it, it tends to be the CFO because it, it affects every employee basically travel. And so they want to at least have a sign off. And so the CFO tends to be the economic buyer, or at least like really want to have a focus on it. In this instance, it was a lot, it was, it would be the CFO, but like for a fortune 500, it would tend to more be SVP, sometimes run it by the CFO, but but not always. Doing this phrase recently, like speak Spanish, Spaniards about trying to like speak finance the CFOs and having to switch your narrative as you get towards the end and you have to, you're speaking in like in our world sales terminology when we're speaking to sales sales right. managers and then you're having to speak so technology language when you're speaking to the tech yeah. team and you're having to start speaking about EBITDA when you're speaking <laughs> to some CFOs and I think I wanted to just ask you from from selling into Fortune 100 companies and and this deal in particular what was the what was the if you could what are the top three lessons that you learned from selling this deal about enterprise sales about selling big deals. Yeah. I think the first thing is you've got to test your champions early and figure out who is a champion. And that's probably pretty obvious to most people who will listen to this and to you guys at this point. But I think in my in my career at that stage, it really, I really learned how to test champions. Like if I am reading about their earnings call or reading their 10K or things like that, or looking at them at the Morgan Stanley conference or whatever it is. And I'm testing them and, and, and pointing out strategic initiatives. Their CFO, for example, to your question is like, is bringing up and they have no idea what I'm talking about. They can't be a champion. Like maybe they could be an okay coach, but they, they definitely cannot be a champion. And so I think testing people to truly understand whether they're a champion and can, can help you win this deal versus maybe be a coach and give you some insight and help you maybe get to a champion who can get you the EB really testing those people early and often was, was the first thing. The second thing is multi-threading and just continuing to do that, right? So to your point about technology and all those different things, like it's never too early if you need a technology validation to try to connect with some of those people. Like what connections do you have to people in that org and technology? Like just recently had a CIO connection here and like, like, that was great. Like it helps progress deals and it makes sure that, Hey, we're not just looking at like the marketing team or the finance team or the travel team or the sales team in your guys' instance, right? Like we actually have validation from multiple different stakeholders that this is going to be relevant and help and help to truly, to truly drive like the business forward. I think the last thing is like, I really learned that that's like enterprise sales is a team sport. At no point was this only my deal to win or lose, nor did I especially want it to be my deal to lose, right? Like if you get to the end of an enterprise deal and you lose and you were lone wolfing it, it's not good, right? Especially if you forecasted it, especially if it's got very high level exec oversight, but also like working as a team is going to make you better and it's going to make you more effective. And so like, I think I truly learned that like the AE's job in an enterprise sale is to be a quarterback 
and to bring in the right experts at the right time, whether it's technology validation, whether it's like very tactical validation, if it's strategic initiative alignment, if it's executive alignment. If I'm selling today to salespeople, I use our tool every day, right? And so I want to be the one actually demoing it because it shows that like it's easy to, you know, so it just, it really just depends. But I think I really learned that on this deal to make sure that I was working as a team and not just lone wolfing it. Yeah, that was great. I think I would love to get your input. And this is on your second point, you know, testing coaches and champions. What are your, some of your like go-to methods or questions you ask to go, is this contact going to fight for me and fight for the deal? Yeah. Will they let you come on site is one of the top things, especially in an enterprise deal. If they won't let you come on site, if they won't grab coffee with you, if they won't grab dinner with you, it's very likely they are not a coach or champion, if, if not completely the case. And it doesn't mean you can't get the deal done. It just means that you don't have a champion, right? Which is makes it almost impossible, if not impossible to win a deal. So I think to me, that's been number one. It's like, will they let me come and be with them and, and build a relationship with them outside of Zoom. The second thing is like, am I on a texting basis with my champion? People who let you text them and text you back and you don't have a bunch of blue bubbles of you texting them and not responding. That's that's the second thing. And then the third thing to me too is like, are they, are they bringing you to the EB, right? Like they shouldn't bring you to the EB if you aren't close to having a business case, right? If it's like very weak. And so it's either one of two things. Either you need to get with them and say, hey, what's wrong with the business case we built? Will you help me build a better business case you think that the EB would care about? Or they aren't a champion and they don't actually have access to the EB. And so I think for me, it's those three things. Like there's obviously more, but I think about consistently that really show you if someone is actually a champion or not. Like, do they actually want us to win? Do they want us to win? And will they tell us? Will they tell me that they want us to win? Champion building is such a counterintuitive thing because you want to get close to this person and like you want them to be a confidant. You want to learn from them. You want to have an ally. But at the same time, you have to continually test them on whether yeah. or not they are. It's such a weird, conflicting relationship that you have. Interesting, we, we, we find from the people that we've spoken to have closed sizable deals like this that there's always a little bit of of chance or a little bit of luck perhaps that comes into the deal that helps either open it or helps you get through a big obstacle or even perhaps helps you close it. Was there anything, any examples of, of that that happened in this deal? Was it just pure SAS SWAT team SAS that you just close the hell out of it? Honey, luck? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's, there's lucky things that can happen. I, I, I can't think of anything that was like truly, Hey, this was like, this was truly luck like this that without a something this lucky happening this this deal would not have happened i think we had a bunch of new stakeholders come in i mean i think you could the, the part you could argue was lucky is like the svp answered the phone call on a vacation right but at the same time it was probably the 50th time i've called him right so or more so i think to some extent like yeah like i'm sure there, there i'm sure there were and i have deals where there is a lot more luck probably involved that's definitely a part of sales in my opinion but I think on this one, I, I don't know that that was the case. I think it was, there were definitely mistakes that I made, but I think overall, like our team, and it wasn't just me, this was not a one person deal, like ran, ran the cycle well to where there are some things that could have killed the deal, but but we worked through them and, and got around them. I was going to say, it really sounds as though you got the ins and outs of this deal sussed out. I always say to Jack, when we say, what's well, like our ideal guest, like somebody who closed, closed the big deal knows exactly how they did it. And this is one of those examples, I would say. Classic. So before me and Jack get to our conclusion with like our closing questions, I, I, yeah. I want to think, and you said 
like mistakes you know were probably made was there anything that you can remember was like i wish i didn't do that differently one on a mistake front and two did you ever walk out of a call going that was that went so well yeah i think they're probably actually connected i i visited a remote office two or three times because that's where even like the director level person was at this company and I, i think i rested on that too much and I didn't get to HQ quick enough where the VPs were. And so it took me too long, but I was like, asked the director, I was like, hey, when's the next time you're at HQ? I'm going to come, basically, because I needed, I needed true executive alignment. And I brought my, my VP with me to, to their headquarters. And so that was a mistake I made. I didn't push for an HQ on site quick enough with the executives because I had the right to do it. I had built a business case. We needed to have that conversation. And I think I walked out of that. It, like again, this was this is a company where the people are there forever. It's, those some of those people started at the company. One of them actually retired and had spent their entire career at the company, like a year into the, the agreement after we signed. And I walked out of that and was like, "This, this, this is going to happen." This was probably eight, six to eight months into it, where we're like, we were. It, it was good. It was going fine. We were kind of about to start contracting, but things kept coming up. Other projects, you know, obviously how that goes in really long deals. I remember like we sat in their cafeteria and I like they showed me around. They showed me their swag store. You know, like we just built a really great relationship. And I asked at the end. I think the most important time in a deal or one of them is when you're either with the EB or a strong champion, and you're walking from a meeting to the elevator and they walk you out. I think that's such an important time to get really bold. And to be like, hey, how did that go? And how do we get this done? Just to their face. And, and I asked that. And he was like, the business case is solid. We're going to get this done. And, and, and here's how. Like, we, we, we need to submit this like there. We need this concession. And we actually never even conceded on price. There were a couple other concessions we had to make on like contracting that we had started. But I think that time to me, I walked out of like that, that walk from the meeting room to the elevator down into them letting us out. And that's, that's a time when I usually get really bold. And I did. And I was like, I know, I know this, this, this deal is going to happen. We have the buy and we need. That is major to think not only what are you going to prep for the deal, but when, what questions am I going to ask when they walk me out of the building? Yeah, it's huge. You can't skip that time. Like you just cannot skip that time. It is so valuable to ensure that you're using every moment you can to either build a better relationship or to ask questions and really challenge them, right? That's a challenge to a champion. How are we going to get this deal done? And if they're like, well, I don't know, or they're like, well, we've got a lot of work, you know, it was like, no, here are the two, three things that we need to do and let's do them. And I'm going to help you do them. Right. And that's when I was like, we have a champion. That was our, the second person because the other person left and we're going to get this deal done. I felt confident. Well, I've had in a long time. Who taught you that? You come up with that yourself. I just, I, I honestly, like, I don't think anybody specifically taught me that, but it just, it feels intuitive, right? Like to be like, after a meeting, you should be asking the person yeah. who's supporting you how you feel like it went and what happens. Like, like, yeah, I, yeah I do it. I do it every single time. I was just at a meeting last week on site, did the exact same thing. And it was like the SVP. And it was just like, how, how, how do we need to, what do we need to do to get this done? What do you, how do you think, think it went? You know these I, people. Right? I think as well, you can do it. It's a really bold thing but it's done casually. Yeah. You know, you can be like, yeah, yeah, look, come on. That, what do you think of the presentation? How are we going to get this deal done? And they're off the, you know, it's like the prospects walking around. I've been, yeah, that was yeah. a really good and tip. to be honest, like 
they, they know they should know the presentation, right? Like I went over it 40 times with this person, not actually, but like a ton of times before that, before any onsite, before any, like what we would call go, no go, but like, we didn't quite call it that, that then, but like you're meeting with the executives and that's basically what that had become. You should be prepping with your champion. Like the best case scenario, in my opinion, is they actually present half of it or more because they know the business the best. They're going to be respected the best. And that's that that actually we co-presented in this instance, but they're not going to be surprised by how the presentation goes. They're going to be have the insight to say that person is really bold or, and they would have kicked you out if they didn't like it. Or that person would have asked these questions and, oh, they're actually just negotiating, right? Or these different things because you've built them into a champion. They know this will help make their lives better and that will help the business move forward. And if you built that case with that champion, then you have the right to ask those things. And I think that that really is such an important piece of, of any deal. Face-to-face version of texting. Totally. It's like, totally. It's like the face-to-face version of that. Like how honest are they at you, with you in that moment? I love it. We've got, a few wrap, we've got a few wrap-up questions that we like to ask that are about this deal and about you in general. And it, this is kind of like our, our three quick-fire questions at the end. Jack, do you want to take us away? Absolutely. The first question, David, is going to be, what skill makes you great? I think something that has improved significantly because I, at Athena, I became a leader. I'd never bought software in the past before. And so I didn't know what it was like to be on the other side. And I think becoming a leader who had to present the business case to buy software and really put my name on the line if I wanted to buy new software gave me greater empathy what people go through in the case you have to make to make change at an, in an organization. And that's not at a massive organization. And so the stakes are even greater at large companies. And so I think for me, like having gone through that process of buying five, six softwares at the last company I was at, or like be, putting my name on, on them has helped me truly grow an empathy for what the people were asking do. And, it, it, and it's made me less selfish and pushy, I would say. And I think that's, that's one of the ways that I can build a really good champion is like really empathizing with the process and what they're going through and what they have to put their name on in order to say yes to to buying your software. I think something expensive and quite life-changing is a real good refresher for salespeople, isn't it? Like buying a house or a car or something. Yeah. You get treated badly by the salesperson or if you, they don't listen right. to you, it, it, it lingers, doesn't it? And it makes sure. an impact on how you go about your day-to-day. The next question is, what, what's your favorite sales memory? My favorite sales memory is it's actually another Fortune, maybe 100, 200 company. I, we were very close to the finish line. And I, it was supposed to be like a May deal, I think, and so, or no, it was supposed to be an April deal. It was going to slip into the next quarter, not slip, but it, that was like the, the actual timing. And I had gotten on a call and we were like, we were in contracting, but it was, it was really heading towards April. And, and we had come to an agreement on contracting and they had actually, they were having a final conversation, like in the last couple of days of March. And so I remember very vividly being like, this actually could be a Q1 deal. And I've been forecasting it in Q2 this whole time. And like, naturally I wasn't trying to sandbag. I sometimes have done that in my career. Of course, I would never do that anymore. But I thought this was going to be an April deal. And so I got off that call and had another call in like 30 minutes to truly to get understanding in between. Okay, is this happening in the next two days? It was the end of March. And I saw my, my sales manager in the bathroom. And he caught me and was asking me and I was like, yeah, yeah, like, I think this is going to happen like in March. But I don't let's not tell our VP yet. Let's wait like 30 minutes or an hour. Because I don't want to say that. And then like, really, like if it's not possible and it's an April deal, there's one rule I've learned since then. You always check under the stalls uh, to make sure that you're talking about isn't in there. <laughs> because the next person that came out of the stall was our VP kind of no. and just smiled. 
And when I <laughs> sounds like this is a March deal, huh? Get it done. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so good. I vividly remember that, man. It was one of my large, it was one of my first ones. This is actually was before this other deal we've been talking about, but it was it was pretty hilarious. It was it was funny, man. Cause I, and I was like, what an idiot, right? Like just check the stalls for 30 seconds and make sure if you're gonna say you're hiding a deal from your VP that he's not in there with you, you know. But that was pretty funny. Awesome. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. I yeah. definitely took took some key takeaways from that. And uh, yeah, hopefully I'll pass cross again soon professionally. Of course, man. It's, it was a pleasure working with you. Jack Fox, it's been great to get to know you today. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on.